Hello, welcome to Tales from the Albright, a podcast by the Scranton Public Library. Today, we will be covering Joseph Albright, whose homestead was on the land that the Albright Memorial Library stands on today. Our guest today is Jess, who's back. She's our Director of Community Engagement. Thanks for having me again. What do you know about the history of the Albright family? Um, I know a little bit-ish. I know that they, I believe they built their home on the land that our library is now. And I know Albright moved to Scranton kind of in the middle of his life and career. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of his kids grew up here in Scranton. Him and his wife did stay here. Uh, for a while and I know that they both passed away in their homestead here in Scranton. Yes. So I'm going to start by going back a little bit further. Okay. So Joseph's grandfather Andreas Albrecht emigrated here from Germany in 1750 and settled in Lilitz, Pennsylvania. His wife was named Elizabeth and Andreas would go on to become a noted gunsmith and lockmaker and he was influential in supplying the Continental Army with guns during the Revolutionary War. That's awesome. Yeah, so it's very far back. Wow. (laughs) It said that he was a very popular singer in the church choir as well. Mm. So that's fascinating. That is. (laughs) It's really both sides of the coin there, like supporting the war effort and religion. Um, So that's always interesting. Andreas had a son, John Henry, who was Joseph's father. And he moved away from the family after he married Barbara Hubley. And on September 23rd of 1811, Joseph Albright was born in Warwick, Pennsylvania. Warwick is in the southeastern part of the state and was one of the many places that the family lived before the family finally settled in Nazareth, Pennsylvania, which is right outside of Bethlehem. Yeah. And Allentown, that Mm -hmm. area. If you're not familiar with the eastern part of the state of Pennsylvania, that's about halfway between Philadelphia and Lancaster, um, which is popular for the Amish and pretzels and that sort of culture. All good things. (laughs) All good food. So now we're just going on to Joseph after that brief genealogy of him. He began his career by becoming trained in tinsmithing and attending classes at Nazareth Hall in Northampton, Pennsylvania. He would gain employment at the Oxford Furnaces in New Jersey before then moving to Easton to be a manager for the same company that he had worked for in New Jersey. And then he changed careers slightly and worked for Ironworks in Lehigh Gap, Pennsylvania and purchase his own ironworks in that area. So he already had that like entrepreneurial spirit that mm-hmm. we saw in Scranton and the will to work and kind of adapt with the changes that were taking place. So is, is the rumor correct that the uh, ironworks that he owned had a bit of a mishap? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to get to that. But while he was working there, that's when he first took a trip up here to the Scranton area. okay. 
1836, Joseph traveled to Slocum Hollow and this area to examine the iron ore deposits in the ground. So he analyzed the soil samples that he took from the ground and then reported it back to the company. He also noted some of the extensive anthracite deposits that seem to be throughout the entire area, which we all know from the coal mining industry and how prominent it is here and Mm -hmm. the coal mine tour. and It's such a cultural thing now to be like, yeah, there's coal here. He was 25 at this time. He's young. Yes, he's young. He's lived in a bunch of places already. And so he did not move here because he was establishing his family Mm -hmm. in the Lehigh Gap. But he did value the land at about $10 an acre and kept it in his thoughts. Later, when he did wind up moving to the area, he would cite his iron ore and coal discoveries as a main reason why many prominent people, including the Scrantons, moved to the area. Okay. Which makes sense. It does. It's where the money is. It's where the industry was going. Exactly. And you needed the iron for the railroads. Right. And the coal to power the railroads and everywhere else. Yeah. And keep things warm. Now I'm going to go on to his family. In 1838, Joseph would marry Elizabeth Sellers, who lived in Montgomery County. The couple would then have four children, Jane, who also went by Jenny. So in the newspapers, it fluctuates of which form of her name they use. Mm -hmm. And she was born in 1839. Hannah Marie was born in 1841. Henry C. was born in 1845. And then his last child would be John Joseph, who was born while the family was in Virginia. I will hopefully be discussing John in a future episode mm-hmm. um, because he is the one that left the land to the city and right. is the reason why the Albright Memorial Library is here. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I should cover his whole life because he lived a fascinating life in a different episode. All four children, however, did play a role in the library becoming what it is today right. because they all had to sign off on the yeah. will and everything else to dedicate it to the city. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now I'm going back to your question about the disaster. Yes. Okay. With his own ironworks in the Lehigh Gap, Joseph would work there until 1841 when the business flooded. Then he tried to rebuild, and disaster struck again when there was a fire. So at this point, he kind of gave up on the whole thing. And move the family to Virginia. And that's why they were there when John was born. They tried to have a fresh start, but strict tariff laws meant that his business also failed. He was basically bankrupt at this time. Like, he had no money. Everything that he was trying to get his hands in failed. But then he was friends with the Scrantons. So they offered him employment working as a general coal sales agent for the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western Railroad. And that's when the family finally moved to the Scranton area. Okay. As I mentioned, the Albrights lived on the plot of land where the library stands today. The house was a two-story structure surrounded by a fence, and the house's entrance was on Washington Avenue. So that's Mm -hmm. the side with the cultural center Mm -hmm. for those who know Scranton today. The photographs that we have show that they had a giant potted plant above their entranceway <laughs> yeah. on the door. <laughs> yeah. it, it 
looks like a giant fern. Yeah. Would you? Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then the first floor of the home had a wraparound porch with decorative trim around the roof and carved pillars. Found a description of their house from Jane Albright's wedding to Raymond Bennell. From that, we know that the home had a conservatory, which could be kind of seen at the back of the house in the photos. So, like, the open area. The second story of the house had windows with shutters, and the roof was pretty flat, and there were also trees on their property. So it was a nice large house for the time. Yeah. We don't really know. I couldn't find anything, at least, of the layout or any floor plans, anything like that. Okay. There is a slight glimpse into the home from an article that discusses Jane Albright and Raymond Bennell's wedding. The article was published on May 26th of 1876, so we definitely know the house is here by that point. Okay. Um, We don't have an exact date of construction. I do go into some of the census records that I find a little bit later. Okay. But I'm going to describe the wedding first because I was fascinated with this article. (laughs) It stated that the decoration of the dwelling in every department also formed an imposing feature of the affair. The front entrance to the parlors on Washington Avenue was heavily draped with the British and American flags, while through the arches and festoons of evergreens, the lights gleamed and shimmered with the softness of, the word here was unreadable, but I'm assuming it probably said something like softness of a beautiful picture. (laughs) Okay, and then the conservatory with a collection of tropical plants and sweet scented flowers shedding their perfume all around heightened the effect of the scene. In every respect, the surroundings were worthy of the glad occasion. The article also noted that a special dancing pavilion was constructed on the outside of the home on the Vine Street side. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So there was no expense left out of this wedding. Wow. In addition to the brief layout of the home, the article also displays the family's wealth because over 300 guests attend the wedding and they decorated their house with the fresh florals and tropical plants and specially made decorations and they had a live orchestra oh my gosh i mean it's 1876 and you're having like tropical plants and like giant bushes of flowers that's a lot of money it's a lot of money so i have a question then so we know he was bankrupt Mm -hmm. when before he came to scranton so how he must have gained a lot of money real quickly by being a coal salesman. Is yeah, that- coal salesman. He also got involved in the railroads. He kind of had his hand in everything. So basically, by this point. so basically, he he quickly made up his money. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, and especially around that time, because that's when the coal industry and the train industry really started taking off. Okay. So you can make a lot of money very quickly. Okay. In that. And and time. because he knew the Scrantons, that was. That was even better. Yeah, because he was with the, like, in-crowd of the people who established the city. Yeah, okay, okay. It it just kind of amazes me how quickly he made up all that money to build the house. And then, you know, a couple years later, his daughter gets married and has this extravagant wedding. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, kind of mind-boggling, but okay. As I mentioned before, there is some confusion on when the house was actually built. Mm Mm-hmm. And when the Albrights officially moved to Scranton to build the house. A Scranton newspaper claimed that 
The house was built in 1838, but according to census records that I was able to find, the Albright family moved to the area between 1850 and 1860. Because in 1850, the family was recorded as living in Lower Toamensing, Pennsylvania, and then in 1860, they were living in Scranton. I can't say that they were officially at the Vine Street address, right. but they, they were, were here. here. Okay. Um, so it had to be between those two points yeah. of time. And then the house would have had to been built by 1875 at the very latest. Yeah. Because it seems like they were established in it enough that by May they could hold this elaborate wedding. Yeah. So if it was newly constructed, that probably wouldn't have been the case. No. On June 3rd of 1873, Joseph was given exclusive rights to the coal deposits under the land. So that is also a possible date of construction of okay. the house because to own the land, the surface area, that also gave him the exclusive rights to the coal underneath. Oh. And on a map I found it had June 3rd of 1873. So that could either be the date he purchased the land mm-hmm. or the family had already been here and that's the day that the coal rights went through. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Once they got to Scranton, Joseph became incredibly successful, as we kind of talked about. He worked as a coal agent. He went to the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western Railroad, to the Delaware and Hudson Railroad. He began promoting anthracite coal, which, as I mentioned, was still in the early days, and he was influential in marketing it to Buffalo and more areas west, being like, hey, we have this great resource. Do you want to use it? Mm -hmm. And he worked on that until he retired. And then starting in 1863, he worked with Joseph Scranton, John Bisbon, Thomas Dixon, and Joseph Platt to establish the first National Bank of Scranton. Mm -hmm. So when he retired from the coal business, he became president of the bank in 1878 and was there until his death. He was also involved with the Dixon Manufacturing Company, Lackawanna Coal and Iron Company, and the Scranton Gas and Water Company. In politics, he was a strong Republican, and that led him to being a delegate to the Republican National Convention at one point. And he received a grant medal as he had voted for him. And it was listed in one of the newspaper articles as one of his most prized possessions. So he was very excited about Ulysses S. Grant, apparently. (laughs) Joseph would die on January 12th of 1888. He is buried in Dunmore Cemetery, which isn't that far away from the library. Articles and information written after his death kind of give a glimpse into his personality. In the Scranton Republican, it was noted that he was respected by everybody for his uprightness in all walks of life and loved by those with whom he came into contact socially. Then another article stated that he was a sociable and genial gentleman in all his associations, active in whatever he espoused, positive in his convictions, and well-informed on all topics. And this is kind of seen in his will. Um, because he donated $4,200 to local churches and organizations. And they included the Home for the Friendless, First Presbyterian Church, which he was a member of, Mm -hmm. the AME Church, and the YMCA. Wow. So he left money to all the organizations he cared about. 
And I was curious about him donating to the AME church Mm -hmm. because it was the local black church. Mm -hmm. We have discovered that his one coachman was Sifa Scott, Mm -hmm. who was a black citizen of Scranton. It seemed like he was so respected by the family that um, the Albert children came back for his funeral, and he was a prominent member of the AME church, so that's an interesting connection, too. Yeah, very. I I never knew that. Yeah. And it would make sense that the Albright family would employ people as coachmen and, like, caretakers because they had money. They had the money for it, yeah. yeah. Do you have any questions or anything at all that you would like to add oh gosh um no i i I, apparently that rumor was true that he really did go bankrupt with his iron works i i yeah thought i had heard that um and i was just always amazed how quickly he bounced back from that Mm -hmm. um but knowing that it it was kind of through knowing the scrantons that kind of got his foot in the door to come up here so you can kind of say in a weird way if you want to that if it wasn't for the scrantons giving him his chance we wouldn't have had this beautiful library he built. Yeah. It's a really, inter- you know, it's kind mm-hmm. of like a domino effect. It, it really is. is. Yeah. Um, very Be- interesting. Yeah, between when he was young, coming up here and being like, hey, there's all of these resources. Yeah. To becoming one of the influential people in the establishment of the city. Yeah. Really. It's yeah. just amazing. Yeah. It's all of those, like, little connections. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. This is where we're going to end the episode this week. And next week, we will look at why Scranton is called the Electric City. So I'm very excited for that one. That's going to be fun. I don't know much about electricity, but I can tell you the history of it. I don't understand. (laughs) You'll love it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So listen next week and keep an eye out for that. If you have any questions, concerns, or anything at all in the meantime, please email me at aloney at albright.org. That is A-L-O-N-E-Y at albright.org. Or call the library at 570-348-3000. Thank you. Thank you.